Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, Dr. Neufeld takes us back into his current series, The King Goes Public, as we look at how Jesus chose his first four disciples during his ministry on earth. So turn with us as we examine the servants of the King in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. I'm reading from Matthew 4, 18 to 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. When Jesus began his public ministry, he was keenly aware that not only would he preach to great crowds, but that he would pick a group of select men whom he would give the title apostles. He would train them, and to them, he would entrust the task of taking his entire gospel to the entire world. As well, these men would lay the foundation for the church. They would be called upon to accurately remember and convey all that Jesus did and taught, as well as explain the implications of what the entire ministry of Jesus was all about. Some of them would be called to write. They would write what would become sacred scripture, so that until Christ returned again, the world and the people of God would never forget all that Jesus began to do and teach. This task was given to them. Never before or since in all of history have such a small group of men been given such a critical task. In Tolkien's trilogy entitled The Lord of the Rings, the task of throwing the ring into the fires of Mount Doom is entrusted to one little hobbit. When all others fail, Frodo Baggins must not fail or the times of men will come to an end. It's quite a drama, but of course, it's only fiction. But here in real history, everything of Jesus' ministry would depend on training these men well. Jesus would die on the cross for our sins, but what if no one remembered? And so as we begin to trace the entrance of the king onto the public stage, we notice him acting very deliberately. He is planning for a long time into the future. He will appoint 12 men to whom he will entrust his entire ministry. His training of these men will make the difference between the world hearing or the world remaining in darkness. According to Matthew 24, 36, Jesus in his human nature did not know the timing of his second coming. But according to Matthew 24, 14, he was aware that this gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations and then the end would come. Bible teachers have often wondered what is meant by the phrase, to all the nations. The Greek word for nations is the word ethne, from which we get our English word ethnic. Since there were no nation states at the time of Christ, I mean, as we know them today, did Jesus really mean that every ethnic group must hear before he would return? Well, of course, he doesn't say. I have some dear friends who work for Wycliffe Bible translators who tell me that in our day, the Bible has been translated into every major language on earth. But the task of translating the Bible into smaller tribal languages yet remains undone, but could be completed in our generation. Is this what Jesus had in mind? Well, Scripture needs to be available in every language, but does the end come only after that? Would every ethnic group have to hear? And here now is the important answer to that question. We don't know. 
Jesus kept his teaching on this subject deliberately vague so we would never know the day or the hour, so we wouldn't act in a silly fashion, setting dates and and making fools of ourselves, but instead waiting for the coming of the Lord at any time. See, there's a curious phrase found in 2 Peter 3, verse 12. It speaks about waiting for and hastening the coming of our Lord. That does seem to suggest that Christians can affect the timing of the Lord's return. But when I say that, I want to be quick to add that I do not mean that the date of Christ's return has not already been foreordained by God, which clearly a number of Bible texts teach us. For instance, in Acts 17.31, Paul says that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the earth. The date is already set. Jesus said the same thing in Acts 1 verse 7. Remember, he was asked by his disciples if he was now going to restore the kingdom to Israel, and he answers, it is not for you to know the times or seasons, and watch this now, that the Father has fixed. Did you hear that? Fixed by his own authority. So in Scripture, you have both the idea of human beings hastening the coming of Christ and the idea of the day fixed within the councils of eternity. Well, what do you learn? Well, God works through human agents and accomplishes his eternal purpose prepared from before the foundation of the earth through us. It's an incredible thought. And these 12 men were about to play a role that, on the one hand, was already foreordained that they would succeed, but on the other hand, placed the entire truth of what God had done in Christ into their hands. If they fail, the world remains in darkness without any hope for light. Therefore, all is dependent on them. But of course, they will not fail, for God has foreordained that this gospel must be preached to all the world. And by the way, I wish all believers had this kind of an attitude. We should make Christ known with the confidence that God will gather in his elect. We cannot fail. At the same time, we should share Christ because if we don't, they will never hear and be saved. Have the kind of faith in God that inspires a deep sense of urgency for the task. Unless I declare the gospel, they will be lost. And also have the kind of faith in God that his word cannot fail to bring in his own. Well, back to choosing the apostles. Clearly, Jesus knew there was a great task remaining after he left. He also knew that the men he chose for that task would be critical. And according to Luke 6, verse 12, before he made the final selection of the 12, Jesus would spend the night in prayer, waiting on God. But it's still some time before that when we're studying our text in Matthew chapter 4. Verse 18 tells us that Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. That means he's in Capernaum, a town of about 1,000, which was to become his home and the base of his operations. Matthew then tells us that he sees two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and his brother Andrew, who were fishermen, and calls them to follow him. Now, if we're not careful here, we might wrongly assume that this is the first meeting the two have ever had. We kind of get the feeling that sight unseen, they see Jesus, he says, follow me. They abandon their careers on the spot and follow him. But the actual story is much more complicated and, by the way, much more interesting. According to John 1, 35-41, Simon, Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel first followed Jesus at an earlier date, during the first year of his ministry, while he was in Judea, and John the Baptist was preaching. At some point in time, they returned to Galilee and went back to their normal work. 
Andrew had been a follower of John the Baptist. In the early days of Jesus' ministry, a year before the event we read of in Matthew 4, Andrew had witnessed John the Baptist pointing out Jesus and then had said, Look, that man is the Lamb of God. And that had so intrigued Andrew, so that Andrew, along with another of John the Baptist's disciples, walked up to Jesus and asked him where he was staying, and asked him to stay with him that day. And Jesus had said they could, and Andrew went off and found his brother Peter and announced to him, we found the Messiah. And Peter was intrigued, and he went to see Jesus, and as he approached, Jesus spoke first. He said, so you're Simon. I'm giving you a new name, Peter. It means the rock. It was a nickname. And Peter would have had no idea what it meant. Only later, in Matthew 16, do we learn that Peter would play a major leadership role in the establishment of the church. He would be a leader among the apostles. But from this point, in the first year of Jesus' ministry, Peter was often to be found where Jesus was preaching. He followed him wherever he was preaching. When Jesus chose Capernaum as his base of operations, Peter must have moved there and begun a fishing business there, for that was his profession. According to John 1.44, Peter and Andrew were originally from Bethsaida. There were in that day nine towns located on the Sea of Galilee that made their business from fishing. And then according to Mark 1.29, Peter and Andrew had moved their base of operations to Capernaum. So why had they moved? Well, although the Bible doesn't tell us, the likely answer is that Jesus was there and they wanted to be close to him. And so they bought a house in Capernaum, moved their base of operations there, and started a business and listened to Jesus preach. And one day there in Capernaum, Luke tells us the story. And by the way, you'll find that in Luke 5, 1 to 11, Peter had been fishing all night, had finished the night shift, and had come to the shore and was washing his nets. His boat was there, and that morning Jesus was teaching a crowd of people gathered on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, just outside of Capernaum. Jesus noticed Peter. He was always there wherever he preached. So Jesus got into Peter's boat. Clearly, they knew each other well. They pushed out just a little from the shore as the water would form a natural amplification system. And there from Peter's boat, Jesus teaches the crowd. So with Jesus preaching, Peter had a front row seat. And what would happen that day would not only change his life, but would direct the history of the church and the history of bringing the gospel to the entire world. Well, this passage is certainly one of the most well-known and familiar. We've learned in these few verses that there is so much more for us to consider. From Jesus' actual relationship to these four men prior to these set of events, to his careful and deliberate planning for those he specifically chose, and the wider implications of this for spreading the gospel to the world. When we return, Dr. Neufeld will help us understand why the way in which Jesus called his disciples was so radical and indeed remarkable. The regular gifts of our Partner to Tell monthly partners have become the very backbone to sustain the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada. Programs that reach out to every demographic using every possible medium, teaching the truth of God's Word that speaks into every area and question of life. Partner to Tell monthly partners are critical to the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada's daily Bible teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld. They support the ongoing ministry to young adults through In Doubt. They provide messages of hope and joy shared daily that point to Jesus through Laugh Again. And now your gifts will become increasingly important as Truth in Life Today reaches potentially millions of households offering biblical truth that engages culture. 
Thank you for all you do. And if you're interested in joining the ranks of Partner to Tell Partners, do so today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. After Jesus finished preaching in Peter's boat, he tells Peter to put out the boat into the lake and to let down the nets for a catch. And Peter says, look, we've been fishing all night. We've caught nothing. But because it is Jesus, he does it. And you know the story. He catches such a large amount of fish that his nets are breaking. He signals another boat to help, and both boats are so filled with fish, they're now in danger of sinking. When it's all done, Peter does an amazing thing. Having heard Jesus teach for the last year, having moved his business to Capernaum to be near Jesus, and having watched some of his miracles, and now witnessing this miracle in which Jesus controlled the course of nature, directing fish to swim into his nets, he has something significant to say. He says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. This is an amazing moment. In effect, Simon gets it. I can't join the crowds anymore. I'm, in fact, morally and spiritually bankrupt. The more I've watched you and the more I've listened to what you have to say, the more I'm convinced of two things. You're a holy man, and I'm a corrupt man. The difference between us is so vast, I will not perpetuate the illusion that I am your follower. I can't be your follower. My internal condition, the bent of my heart is evil. Please, please go away from me. And Jesus will have none of that. He simply tells Peter, don't be afraid. And then he adds, from now on, you'll be catching men. And with that, Peter simply trusted him and abandoned his fishing practice along with Andrew, his brother, and became a full-time follower of Jesus. Now, Matthew is recording this very same event, but doesn't include any of that drama. His account is an abbreviated account. He simply has Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, seeing the brothers fishing, calling them to follow him, and telling them they're going to be fishers of men. No mention of the preaching he did on that day, or the drama in the boat, or Peter's crisis, none of that. But why? Why doesn't Matthew tell us the whole drama? See, one of the things you discover in reading the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus called the Gospels is that all four accounts mention the same thing, but they want the reader to see another layer of meaning behind the event. And Matthew, by not focusing on the great drama on the Sea of Galilee that day, or about Peter's personal crisis, by removing this picture from us, Matthew wants us not to get distracted, but to see one picture only. And what is it we're supposed to see? See, please remember that Matthew is writing to a largely Jewish audience, and his audience would have picked this up in an instant. What would they have seen? Well, rabbis or philosophers or holy men of that day all had disciples. There's nothing unusual about a teacher having disciples or students or young men whom they were mentoring. But something is very different here, and any Jew would be left scratching their head. Because what happened here simply wouldn't have made sense to them. If you're growing up in the Jewish world at the time of Jesus, your education would have looked a little bit like ours, but different as well. From ages 6 through 12, all Jewish children, boys and girls, would attend a synagogue school. There they would learn to read and write, and they would memorize the sacred text of the Torah. That's why the Jews were among the most literate people on the earth, both men and women at the time of Jesus. At the end, Jewish boys would celebrate a bar mitzvah, which was their graduation from school, but also their introduction into manhood. They were now ready on the basis of their mastery of the law to live as men. 
From ages 13 to 15, young men who were deemed worthy were allowed to continue their education, and they would learn the entire Old Testament as well as learn their own family trade. Then after age 15, the elite of the Jewish young men would make an application to become the disciple of a well-known rabbi. It was an incredible honor for a rabbi to permit someone into his school. In effect, elite Jewish students created a resume and applied to various rabbis. If they had any chance to be chosen, they would show themselves to be excellent students. They would have to be bright. They would have to be worthy of that rabbi's effort. To be allowed into this kind of a school of discipleship was a great honor, and it also brought honor to one's family. The schooling would often last uh, between ages 15 and 30. They would literally follow the dust of their rabbi, or they would learn to emulate all their rabbi's mannerisms. They would eat the same food in the same way as their rabbi did. They would sleep the same way he did, going to bed and waking when he did. And they would learn the Torah in the same way as their rabbi did. And when they were fully trained, they would be like their rabbi in all things. Only then could they themselves become a rabbi. So you can imagine a 15-year-old exceptional student living in Galilee. He would be sending out application to various rabbis, hoping to be accepted by one of them. But did you notice who initiated the discipleship process? Well, the students did. Always the initiative lay with the young man. And now we know why Matthew doesn't mention the drama of the fishing boat in that day. He doesn't want his Jewish audience to be distracted. He wants them to see only one thing. Later on, Jesus would play on this theme. In John 15, verse 16, he would say, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That's the one issue here. Jesus is not reacting to applications. He's leading, and he's choosing his men. Of course, Matthew's not done. He wants also at this time to tell of the calling of James and John, another two brothers, who were the sons of a man named Zebedee, a man, it would seem, who had a profitable business. When Mark mentions this event, he also mentions that Zebedee had servants, so it seems clear to me that Zebedee was able to carry on with his business after his two sons left and had followed Jesus. Furthermore, fishers in that time were generally wealthier than the average peasant living in Galilee. So we are to take from this that these men probably made a considerable sacrifice to follow Jesus. But that's not the point here. Only one thing matters to Matthew. Jesus called them. I know that only four are mentioned here, and that's not until Matthew 10, when Matthew will tell us all about 12 and how Jesus called them not just to be disciples, but to be apostles. But here in chapter 4, we have the calling of four. And of these four, we know that Peter, James, and John would become a part of Jesus' inner circle, the ones who spent the most time with Jesus alone. As tempting as it would be to make a sermon about the importance of following Jesus here and of abandoning every earthly thing to follow him, I will allow Matthew to make the point he wants us to make. When the king went public, he meticulously arranged his ministry in such a way that what he said and what he did and what he accomplished would never be forgotten. Jesus arranged it so that the gospel and his ministry would never be erased from the collective consciousness of the human race. And so he chose the men whom God had chosen to perform this task. 
And that, my dear friend, is why we can be so bold about proclaiming Jesus. One hymn writer said, kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. It's that name that will not pass away. It was entrusted to those who were faithful to carry it on. And that's why we need to fear no evil. That's why we need not fear the kingdoms of this world. They will all cease to be soon enough. But what was done in Christ will never be forgotten. In obedience to the Father, Jesus saw to that. He arranged it meticulously. He ordered all of it. Are you ever concerned about our country? You're concerned maybe that it's drifting further away from Christ. Whatever happens, let me assure you of this. Canada and its cultural values will disappear, but the word of Christ will not. Jesus saw to that. He made sure that it would always remain so you and I can get bold, share Christ. We're on the winning side. All other beliefs will one day be no more. The things that are proclaimed so loudly today will be forgotten by future generations. But what we believe when we hold to Christ will endure to eternity. That's the message that Jesus ensured on that day when he called those men to come and follow him. So let's be confident the gospel is for all times. Thanks, John. Uh, once again, you've made me think, and uh, once again, you've made me ponder some of these things uh, of the kingdom. And, uh, you know, as you were speaking, you know, the world can seem in so much turmoil. It's almost in a tailspin. And we hear things every day that, that we shudder and we, we think, how can this be happening? And, and all that makes us maybe lose some confidence uh, what do we need to remember when it comes to God and His sovereignty and perhaps the importance of, of sharing the good news and, and the urgency of the gospel? Yeah, so many questions here, but I think so much of our fears in any given time period is what would happen if the gospel were to be eclipsed? And we should be confident that God will never, never let that happen. The work that Jesus did and entrusted to faithful men so that, you know, that they would entrust it to other faithful men, that work is not going to stop happening. Yes, we may live in a time when there's a temporary decline in the amount of people that believe, but I'm confident that what God has in the gospel will simply not pass away that God will always safeguard it. It will continue to get stronger, and then Christ will return, and he's gonna take the world to himself. So let's be confident, and let's be sure as we declare the gospel. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading people forward in their walk with Jesus every day. Can I smoke pot? Well, this month on Truth and Life Today, Dr. John Newfeld welcomed Mark Ward to discuss his book, Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in the Light of Scripture. You know, by looking at the biblical teaching on creation, government, medicine, and alcohol, this book sets out to help people make wise and God-honoring decisions about marijuana use. Rather than just providing a list of proof texts, Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in the Light of Scripture looks at what the Bible teaches as a unified whole from Genesis to Revelation so we can more confidently answer the question, what does the Bible say? So for the month of April, we want to make this timely book available to our listeners for only $8 and it includes shipping, handling, and taxes. 
So give us a call today, would you? The number is 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca and remember to order yours today because quantities are limited.